0: to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, issue 15, November 3304. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed, out in the black.
1: Editorial. Your correspondent has spent the last few weeks revisiting memorable places he found on his first great voyage in 3302. This reunion tour has involved some moving moments. Lonely laps around impromptu racetracks on untouched worlds, pearlescent blue and green planets seen by no one but him, and distant nebulae looming closer with every jump, like old friends. One stop was Colonia. When this writer was there in the heady early days, the new bubble was one barely functioning station awash with refugees fleeing the escalating tensions between superpowers back home. In a speech made at the time, he remembers telling assembled colonists that one day we'll meet again, in a place like this, under the stars, and it will be to celebrate building a whole new civilization. Well, that civilization has now been built, but not by the ragtag band of colonists gathered that day. In their wisdom, in early 3303, the Colonia Council invited Pilots' Federation groups from the bubble to export their factions to the new settlement. As our writer J.C. Warren explores in this month's cover piece, the result is a bustling patchwork of factions not unlike the bubble. It's not the individualist haven we early settlers dreamed of, but it's undeniably a success. This strategy reminds this correspondent of an example from history, It is as if the Founding Fathers, after the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America, had decided to invite the landed gentry from England to set up replica estates in the New World. They didn't, of course. America became a land built by waves of disparate immigrants, bound together by nothing but an ideal and a work ethic. In the end, it was the precursor to the federation the most successful society humanity has ever known. What could have been, we wonder. Anyway, your correspondent was struck as ever by the magic of Colonia. Countless stars against a surreal purple sky on the cusp of the galactic core. It is a fantastic dreamscape. If you haven't been, go.
2: The guardian cover-up
3: their civilization rose and fell more than a million years before humanity touched the stars in their prime they were a Kardashev type 2 civilization like ours and ruins of their bases can be found across the entire galaxy Since our first discovery of them, a small number of independent commanders have uncovered Guardian bases nearly as far from our inhabited space as the Galactic Core. The only thing more astounding than the Guardians' massive reach is the fact that humanity only started hearing things about them two years ago. For those readers unfamiliar with the Guardians, in short, they were a long-dead race of humanoid aliens about whom we have been able to unearth a vast amount of information through study of the ruins they left behind. More than that, drawing from the documentation of their ancient conflict with the Thargoids, we have even researched, reverse-engineered, and integrated Guardian technology into our own ships. Most recently, we have even deployed three new types of fighters based upon Guardian tech, which are an incredible sight to behold. It is a painstaking process to uncover Guardian sites, investigate and gather data from them, and develop that research into new starship technologies compatible with our current designs. But considering how dramatically different Guardian technology is from our own, were these two years really enough time? When it comes to our understanding of the Guardians, quite a lot of the timeline does not add up. The modern frameshift drive was first introduced to the public in 3290, For the first time in humanity's history, a jump between stars took seconds instead of hours. To say that this revolutionized space travel would be the understatement of the millennium. Not only has the technology had an enormous influence on interstellar commerce, but it has also opened the galaxy to exploration more widely than at any point in history. Without the current frameshift drive and all the recent improvements made to it, it may well have taken humanity millennia to explore the whole of our galaxy. For this reason, it could be argued that it is unsurprising that Guardian technology lay hidden and undiscovered for most of our spacefaring history. After all, most human interstellar travel is conducted for the purposes of trade, not exploration. The vast majority of trade routes are crossed thousands of times. There is simply no requirement to scan known systems, and little time for unknown ones when a shipment of biowaste sits festering in the cargo hold. Still. Since 3290, we've had access to fast, reliable space travel for nearly a decade and a half. It's not as if Guardian Ruins are rare. Humanity has explored an infinitesimal fraction of the stars in our galaxy and already found more than a hundred sites. Perhaps this is due to the fact that their main territory and homeworld appears to be in a region of space quite close to ours. Likewise, this is all the more reason to believe it is unlikely that Guardian Ruins remained obscured for so long. Were Guardian Ruins ever uncovered, prior to Commander X Death's triumphant and very public discovery? Perhaps humanity at large was just left out of the loop? This publication has discussed at length the assortment of shadowy, powerful figures known in some circles as the Club, what we know thanks to the brave efforts of Lady Kahina Loren, is that this secret group has members at every level of society and they take actions to shape the course of human history. The full extent of their influence is unknown, but it is reasonable to assume that such power could be responsible for our failure to notice the remains of an alien race right under our noses. First, the club has a history of alien cover-ups. Though some details are unclear, we know that humanity previously experienced armed conflict at least one group of Thargoids. One would think that an interstellar war is something that would be impossible to cover up, and yet the club did just that, reducing humanity's understanding of the prior Thargoid incidents to little more than a legend, whispered about in bars and dismissed in civilized society, covered extensively in issue 7 of this publication. This, more than anything else, demonstrates their nearly unlimited power to shape the consciousness of the inhabitants of the Bubble. Second, the timing of our Guardian discoveries seems too coincidental. A few short years ago, independent commanders first observed unknown artifacts being carried by secret Federal convoys. These artifacts continued to be noticed as we began finding other clues to the coming threat, like the barnacles and unknown probes around the Pleiades and California nebulas. Whispers began to spread of an alien race, perhaps the legendary Thargoid menace. Then, seemingly out of the ether, we became aware of the Guardian ruins in late 3302. It wasn't until several months later that the first pilot stumbled into a Thargoid interdiction whilst in hyperspace. Fast forward two years and we have suddenly acquired highly effective hybrid Guardian weaponry and ship modules aiding us in our conflict with the Thargoids. Starship engineering specialists will understand how utterly improbable this is. Humanity and the Guardians are two entirely different civilizations with completely different languages, mathematical notations, and systems of technology. While Ram Ta and the engineers have proven their capacity for innovative technological work, historically, two years is simply too short a time for this kind of advancement to have taken place without significant preparation. We must conclude from this. That the public narrative about the Guardians is not entirely correct. Here then is a theoretical, alternative narrative, the first positive of which is humanity's leaders have known about the Guardians for some time. Even perhaps as far back as the discovery of the Mars relic more than a thousand years ago, there seems to have been some indication of alien influence in human society. The item itself is still shrouded in mystery to this day, covered in a previous issue of this magazine. Perhaps it was not seen as useful to the club, or whoever was working to keep the Guardian secret, for knowledge of the alien ruins' existence to become public. Using their documented connections and industry in the Pilots' Federation, they may have been able to permit-lock certain known systems, and shield detection of other Guardian ruins by ship's sensors from a distance. This could have allowed them to study and perhaps utilize Guardian technology much earlier than publicized, thus helping to establish the technological edge so quickly after first contact with the Thargoids. However, with the Thargoids' recent return, this strategy of concealment would have become counterproductive. It would have become clear that humanity needed all hands on deck, so to speak, to survive this war. That would have meant opening up these highly effective Guardian technologies to anyone who could use them in the upcoming battle. In the end, our shadowy benefactors may have condoned the need to lift their restraints on our ability to find these ruins, just to ensure there was an acceptable explanation for these incredible new advancements. The resulting discoveries of Commander X-Death and others eventually introduced this alien race to the Bubble's population at large. As the war began in earnest, a big show of technological development was made. Ending with highly complex hybrid technologies that ought to have at least taken decades of research and re engineering to become compatible, with advanced design testing before finally being mass produced for the war effort. The fact of the Guardians' existence is now incontrovertible. It now seems impossible in our vastly interconnected era that, as happened with the past Thargoid conflict, members of the club would be able to erase the entire concept of these ancient Guardians from our racial memory. That said, We should remain vigilant in trying to determine what may have been known about the guardians before our first public encounters with their lost society the fact that their presence in the galaxy is now so obvious in hindsight leaves us with one other lingering question remaining if the idea of the guardian's existence was concealed from us what else could we be missing what more is out there in our galaxy already known to but a few powerful and anonymous manipulators, perhaps too egotistical or too afraid to let the public in on their hidden secrets. When the conflict is over, and perhaps even before then, humanity would do well to turn its attention to its mysterious overseers, and not allow them to slink back into the shadows from whence they came.
4: Carving Out the Kingdom Conflict is an intimate part of the human condition. Without conflict, there is no drama, no tension, no striving for the next thing, no power to push us forward. Conflict has driven every major technological development in our past, and likely in our future too. If we consider the basic human desire to factionalize into groups and compete against each other for available resources, then we can see what it means to be human. There are countless socio-political, economic, and military factions into which humans associate, Beyond the big three, the Federation, Alliance, and Empire, the most recent census data indicates as many as 766,000 registered socio-political groups operating inside human space. All of these groups are in constant struggle with each other, jostling for primacy, access to resources, and control of valuable assets. As independent pilots, we are both outside of all of these structures and reliant upon them. They control the stations and ground ports where we must land to conduct, trade, refit and repair and take on contracts. There is, however, a tiny but measurable butterfly effect on the fate of the factions for anyone choosing to interact with them. Smaller, low-population factions especially can be greatly influenced by the decisions of a footloose interstellar starship pilot. Some commanders prefer to hide from this tangle of socio-economic forces, either by choosing not to think about the individual effects they have, or by taking to the black to actively avoid such interactions. A few, on the other hand, embrace the chaos of this system, working within it, and with it, to manipulate the balance of power around them. These pilots choose to align themselves with a specific factional power, promote its interests, and allow these factions to gain ascendancy over their rivals. Do not be deluded, this is not a democratic process of change, this is hard economics. Choosing, for whatever reasons, whom to serve has consequences for local citizens as well as the wider galactic community. Galnet recognises 14 government types, 13 economic conditions, and 13 socioeconomic states that describe, in the broadest possible strokes, what a visitor can expect to encounter in any given system. Galnet heuristics distil all of the available transaction data, census studies, and opinion polls into a simplistic rating of relative influence produced by the Bureau of Galactic Statistics. This rather abstract information also allows anyone an opportunity to play a role in shaping the inhabited galaxy. By applying small amounts of pressure here or there, supporting one faction over another, or selling valuable exploration data to one faction over another, one can influence who rises to ascendancy in a system. By helping their influence to grow, anyone can begin to carve out a kingdom for their chosen faction. Galnet currently recognises 13 socioeconomic states, which can be subdivided into four groups conflict, territorial, economic, and special. Conflict states occur when two factions have similar levels of influence and need to establish dominance, either by war or by election. If one of the factions owns an asset in the system, then it will be captured by the victor. The three conflict states can be war, civil war, or election. Territorial states occur based on the levels of influence a faction holds in a system. High influence leads to expansion to new star systems, while very low influence leads to a withdrawal of forces. On those rare occasions when expansion is not possible due to a lack of viable system candidates, an investment state can be triggered, which allows expansion over a greater range. The projection of political power is critical to establishing control of another system over distances of light years. The three territorial states can be expansion, investment, and retreat. Economic states describe the workings of the economy and types of missions that the factions offer. Economic booms and busts affect the profitability of trades. Famine and outbreak indicate the presence of profitable mercy missions in the form of sourcing foods and medicines. Civil unrest and lockdown are security states that result in station services being restricted. The economic states are boom, bust, civil unrest, famine, outbreak and lockdown. Exile is a rarely occurring system state which can only arise when a previously ruling administration in a permit-locked system is forced out. Some states are faction-wide, meaning that if a faction is present in multiple systems and goes to war in one of them, that war state affects its other systems too, since resources are diverted. Everyone will have their own reasons for choosing to support one faction over another. Perhaps they fly with a particular wing that supports a faction, or perhaps they just happen to like their ethos, their location, their space station, or even their name. Whatever it is, that's okay. Simply pitch up and muck in. But... If having serious designs on carving out one's own kingdom, be choosy. Other pilots may have a significant interest in the system or in adjoining systems. Success requires selectivity. The first step is to survey the system in full and check that a prospective home port has access to at least the basic essentials, repairs, outfitting and a shipyard, as well as a viable trade commodity or two and a well-stocked mission board. Some system features like a scoopable star or a ringed world that supports resource extraction may also be of value. The second, highly important variable to determine, is the quantity of system traffic. The more traffic by independent pilots, the more difficulty there will be supporting a chosen faction. Actions of every pilot will add together, making individual influence less substantial. Other commanders might be supporting rivals or just taking the highest paid or most interesting jobs and that can count against any single pilot's efforts. Pick a quiet system, out of the way and infrequently visited by others. Minimising the impact others will have on the system will make your early machinations much more successful and less chaotic. Once a choice is made, the first task is to build up a reputation with your new faction. The better the relationship with them, the better the missions they will offer you, with higher influence to exert leverage on that faction's position. This is crucial for the long-term development of political power. At any new home base, take a few moments to look through the local news articles. Reports are available on system traffic, bounty hunting, and relative faction influence, as well as present and future socio-economic states. The socio-economic state of the faction determines the contracts they offer to itinerant pilots, according to those factions' needs. In simple terms, the different states will require different goods or resources to address whatever state they're in. Providing those goods or services will help them emerge from inimical states or induce or prolong positive ones. The road to political dominance is not a straight one. At some point, there may be calls for bounty hunting, At other times, sourcing or shipping specific commodities. Ignoring these requests place any chosen faction at risk. Over time, all actions will bring about change. Fulfilling more influential missions will bring this about more quickly. At some point, a faction will need to fight for control of the main space station or ground base in the system, and with it, control of the system itself. Depending on the relative government types of the faction and the incumbent, this may result in either a war or an election to determine dominance. In a war state, only combat actions will affect the balance of power and the outcome of the struggle. Combat actions include bounties or combat bonds cashed in to gain influence. Destroying the ships of an opposing target faction will also bring about a reduction in their influence. Elections, on the other hand, are won or lost on political or trade influence, so missions are required. Note that the delivery of trade goods and cartographic data are only of benefit to the station's owner. If a supportive faction is not in control of a station in the conflicted system, do not trade in the open market or sell data to try to boost their influence. You'll only succeed in boosting the faction already in power. The faction in control of a system can be destabilized more quickly by undertaking illegal actions. Killing clean ships belonging to that faction will put a bounty on the killer and bring them into conflict with law enforcement, while killing the law enforcement themselves will quickly diminish the ruling faction's influence. This leads to the population losing faith in that faction's ability to keep them safe. This method will quickly boost an offender's notoriety though, and that can lead to other problems. There will be no time to rest on one's laurels. Once a chosen faction is in control of a system, there is more to be done. Even if there are no immediate designs for further expansion, the distant butterfly effect of thousands of other commanders will gradually eat away at what has been built if it is not maintained. Other system factions should be kept in line or played off against one another to prevent them from gaining influence and threatening a controlling position. In time, a king's gaze may fall upon other systems, pushing their faction into expansion and attempting to gain a purchase in a new system. How far one goes, how much territory they claim, depends largely on the strength of their ambition and their commitment to the cause. Are you ready to seize your crown?
2: Rare Commodities Spotlight Aurarian Vicious Brew
5: No one is quite sure why several of the rare commodities in the Old World sector are so aggressively named. However, Aurarian Vicious Brew is definitely a potent mix and has been the talk of the system for decades. The origin of this commodity is believed to stem from way back in the 3100s. Bootleggers smuggled samples of a fermented tree sap extract to Sharon Lee Free Market Station. It is believed that this sap was mildly poisonous and came from a species native to the planet, but that it had been mixed with the rind of an old colonial fruit whose name has been lost to time. The alkaloid content in the resultant brewed batch was incredibly high, not uncommon for the Ararian diet. Natives of the system enjoy a particularly bitter mix of tastes in their food and drink. Aurarian seasoning is also bitter, and one of the first things any Aurarian pilot will pack into their personal effects when heading out into the black. The vicious brew is so high in caffeine and natural sugars that it is often classified as a narcotic. Both the addictive properties and resulting sleep deprivation are well-known effects and have, on occasion, been blamed for wild incidents of criminality. It is said that one drunk pilot, a commander Timothy Tubbs, who had recently lost a fortune at cards, tipped half a keg of a rare and vicious brew into the engine of his sidewinder and promptly blew a hole in the landing pad when trying to take off. Since then, supplies of the brew have been restricted and regulated by Sharon Lee free market authorities to ensure quality and rarity on the interstellar market. However, that does not stop the system's planetary populations from drinking as much as they like. Down on the planet, local variations are common and rumored to be even more potent. Visitors to Rare do say that the bitter diet makes for bitter people. The spiteful nature of the locals is just a stereotype, but it has been widely circulated, parodied in several vision comedies. Aurarians are often portrayed as sarcastic insomniacs who can't take a joke. Whatever the true origin of this eye-popping moonshine, it certainly fetches a good profit when taken out of the sector. Martian coming-of-age rituals Often involve the imbibing of a particularly potent off-world drink, and a rarian vicious brew is one of the most favored, owing to its aggressive taste. Listian evil juice comes a poor second at parties, but is the primary choice for the upper class. A sip of a rarian vicious brew immediately stimulates the tongue; both sour and salty taste buds are engaged producing a sensation along the left and right peripheries of the mouth. The astringent quality causes a mild swelling on the tongue and surrounding gums, giving the impression that this viciousness will be without end. On swallowing, the drinker will feel the sensation transferred to the back of the throat, along the pharynx and down. This has been known to cause choking as the swallow reflex is interrupted, and the drinker will find their mouth filled with the vicious taste for a long time. Water can help reduce the effect, as can little salt. However, once a drinker becomes used to the taste, a rare and vicious brew can quickly become a preferred refreshment. The strong kick quickly eliminates any sense of thirst, making the drink a good starter for any pilot on a tight budget who doesn't want to stay around long enough to buy the next round.
6: Lab Notes Praseodymium. Praseodymium is a metal you might have seen when mining some metallic asteroid or scrolling through the commodities market without ever having paid it much attention, due to its wide availability and mid-tier valuation. Atomic number 59 it has atomic symbol P-R and is part of the lanthanides group of metals. It is a soft, easily cut and deformed metal with a fish-scale pattern on its surface, giving it a scintillating sheen. Praseodymium was first discovered by Karl-Alf von Welsbach in 1885, but was found to have no practical use beyond coloring glass. The addition of powdered praseodymium into the molten glass has the effect of coloring it bright yellow. Von Felsbach isolated it together with another metal, neodymium. Didymos means twin in ancient Greek. Prisiodymium exposed to oxygen gains a green oxide layer. Prisinos means green, and prisiodymium thus became known as the green twin of neodymium. In the centuries following its discovery, Preziodymium found use as a component in the production of very high strength magnetic alloys, mainly used in the aeronautics industry due to the alloy's light weight. Today, there is still the need for low mass, high strength materials for spacecraft and station construction. The metal also responds well to the requirements of precision tooling, and so can be used in the manufacture of laser optic components. Another major application, together with neodymium, a twin indeed, is in the production of extremely high-powered electromagnet cores. These are used in the magnetic coils that generate the containment fields that safely restrain the high-pressure reactions in our fusion drives. A more deadly use for the material is in the accelerator rails and main suspension field generators of high-power subluminal velocity mass-driver weaponry, like the railgun. Plasma accelerators also require these magnets to generate the containment fields encapsulating the ionized gas projectiles. It would have been very difficult to imagine, then, how deeply von welsbachs discovery has embedded itself into our economy, and more directly, our technology. Without it, the advent of the fusion plant as the main source of power production, let alone the century of aeronautical innovation preceding humanity's leap into space, would have never gotten off the ground. Colonia, Eden
4: Evolved. The summer of 3302 was marked by optimism and excitement following the discovery of Jacques Station marooned in a distant nebula. As a nascent colony sprang up around it, the dreams of early settlers began to coalesce into a new outpost of humanity, Two years on, we revisit the story of the new bubble. The Colonia region is humanity's budding frontier. A tiny speck of the Milky Way galaxy It's cradled between the festival grounds and the western neutron fields and is today home to more than 71 systems inhabited by over 9 million people. The Colonia system is about 22,000 light years from Sol and boasts the famous Shark Station currently in orbit around Colonia 4. To get there, pilots must travel the extraordinary distance of the Colonia Highway, an investment of time that puts off all but the most determined. But once they arrive, visitors find a thriving region offering pristine mining fields, lucrative trade routes, unique possibilities for exploration, and the opportunity to become a true pioneer. Colonia became an important point of interest on the galactic map soon after the rediscovery of Jacques Station, following his misjump to Beagle Point on May 19, 3302. Commander Jacques and his Starpoint went missing for nearly a month after the initial jump, and most of the inhabitants of the Fasease system feared the worst. Fortunately, a savvy explorer by the name of Commander Sly tracked down the crippled starport in mid-June of that year, and the word of the discovery spread quickly through populated space. In a little over a month, the exploration community organised a rescue operation with pilots shipping tons of meta alloys across the galaxy to the damaged starport. That mission seamlessly transitioned into what would become known as the August Exodus Jaunt to Jacques expedition. This expedition became the second largest independent commander supported event in recorded history, just behind the original Distant Worlds expedition. Close to 600 Pilots Federation ships joined the efforts and raced their way out to EOPROL RST D394 in the effort to repair Jacques' station and establish the beginnings of a new and distant human colony. The Colonial Citizens Network, or CCN, quickly followed, founded by a few explorers including Aramis Kamzell, Unrealization, Cohen Leth, and Souverine, now chief editor of this magazine. This organization offered a communications hub for use by the colonists in forming their own society, From this initiative it grew into a central core of activity for the colony, seeing close to 2,000 settlers join the network and commit to migrating into that region during the months that followed. Suverin explains what Colonia was like at the time. The hope that many people had was that Colonia could become a different sort of
2: place to the bubble. The atmosphere out there was incredible, everyone collaborating to build the new society. Everyone flew out in the open, hailing each other cheerfully, without fear of being caught in the crossfire of some war or picked upon by some murderous bully. We
4: thought it would always be like that. In December of 3302, the Colonia Council had created colonization plans for the Colonia region, instigating the Colonia Expansion Initiative, or CEI. This was a series of monthly community goals, which later became known as the Colonia Migration Appeals, designed to allow Pilots' Federation groups in the bubble to set up a base of operations in Colonia. In a matter of days, the galactic community began gathering resources in competitions designed to determine which organizations had the most to offer the colonization effort. The top 10 contributing groups to the first Colonia migration appeal were awarded migration visas and permitted to help colonize pre-selected systems. This migration had a dramatic impact. It changed the way Colonia felt.
2: Most people didn't want factions moving out there, exporting their wars and politics from the bubble. The whole point of
4: Colonia was that it didn't have those things. Suverine left CCN and Colonia shortly after the CEI began. Following five successive Colonia migration appeals, each granting invitations into Colonia for a number of additional organisations, the CEI was formally shut down in May of 3303. The Pilots' Federation groups with offshoots in the regions now began to learn to live alongside one another. The Jacques Accords were created, following protracted negotiations between the new factions. The CCN began to be perceived as an overtly political organisation by some, seeking to cling on to a first-movers advantage in the region that many of the new groups felt was no longer relevant. Commander Harg's, a CCN leader, explains.
1: The early days of Colonia were tough. The lack of outfitting and facilities was particularly grueling." but there was a sense of optimism, community, and excitement that has since dwindled. Seeing new people all the time was simply wonderful. Civilization has meant, though, that it is all but gone now, as the mistrust burgeons between factions.
4: One year later, and humans were racing out to the Colonial region once again. But, instead of welcoming and hosting groups of self-sufficient immigrants on their way to new settlements, the outposts were now receiving an influx of refugees fleeing the ongoing conflict with the Thargoids in and around the Pleiades Nebula. Fearing for their safety, entire families were taking what they could and leaving their homes in the bubble to attempt the long and dangerous journey to Colonia. In light of this, the Colonia Council decided to initiate a large multi-station construction campaign. Bids were accepted for delivery of construction materials to Pilkington Orbital in Onhariar, and the appeal was supported by commanders from every corner of the bubble. Within weeks, specifications for new outposts were provided to architects in the Colonia region. As construction began, refugees continued to arrive in Colonia. Galenian News quoted an unidentified source claiming several leaders within the Federation and Empire were angry with CCN leadership for claiming that the new expanse was a safe haven from Thargoid aggression. In addition, scientists with canon research scoffed at the idea of creating a safe haven from alien lifeforms and pointed to the Pleiades Nebula as their proof the controversy did not stop any migrants or refugees from continuing to pour into Colonia, which forced the Council to call for additional infrastructure initiatives in an effort to accommodate them. For millions of people, the safest idea was to get as far away from the Thargoids as possible, and the Colonia region was the logical answer to that most urgent and immediate threat. Sadly, as more refugees arrived in the nebula, criminal organisations also began to blossom. Piracy ran rampant as privateers and seekers of fortune took advantage of underarmed cargo and transport ships piloted by new immigrants. CCN sent word of the carnage back to the Pilots Federation, pleading for assistance. Within days, bounty hunters were sprinting across the 22,000 light years to the Carcosa system, armed with high powered weapons and the skill to use them. To the surprise of no one, the largest of many felonious groups was completely dismantled in less than a week order was once again restored to the fragile region. Once law and order were enforced in the area, scientists had the chance to begin their work. During May of 3304, Professor Alexei de la Vega launched a research project to determine if the region could support larger populations in the future. Upon receiving resources from independent local pilots, de la Vega's team seemed hopeful that expanding the Colonia region was possible. The following June, De La Vega launched a new initiative in the TIER system in partnership with TIER Technology Services to construct a scientific installation. With the new data at their disposal, his team determined that the region's population was growing at an alarming rate, much faster than resources could be extracted and made available for them. The new installation began focusing on monitoring the overall infrastructure, tracking the progress in terraforming systems and developing logistics plans to help manage the region's supplies and avoid critical shortages. August of this very busy year also saw Professor Diana Van Cleef, a scientific advisor to the Colonia system, announcing plans to construct a new hydroponics facility in the rain system following research projecting food shortages in the near to mid-future. Once finished, the project, led by the Colonia Research Division, plans to provide natural and bioengineered foodstuffs for the populace of the nebula. The facility will also house a dedicated research laboratory for biotech science teams developing new crops. When Councillor Giselle Kingspear of the Colonial Council announced that four talented engineers had established bases providing their services in the nebula, her popularity may have skyrocketed.
7: The Council believes it has a duty to support those who contribute so much to the region's stability. That's why we have consulted with engineers in the core systems, to identify individuals who could offer similar services here in Colonia.
4: The four engineers all have a variety of skills which should improve as they practice their vocations. Mel Brandon, based in Luctane, specializes in laser-based armaments shields, engines, and frameshift drives. Etienne Dorn works from the Lost system and is an expert on sensors, scanners, and high-energy weapons. Petra Olmanova is based in the Asura system and develops ship armor, countermeasures, and explosive weaponry. Lastly, Marsha Hicks in the Tier system offers upgrades in ballistic weapons, fuel scoops, refineries, and limpets. Today, next to the bubble itself, The Colonia region is one of the most thoroughly explored areas of the galaxy. Being situated within a dense starfield, it is overflowing with resources and beautiful sights, including a multitude of pristine ringed planets and minor stars. Commander Helium-7 explains.
7: As an explorer, I need to visit unexplored systems. So in the Colonia region I don't have to jump 1000 light years to find uncharted space. In the Colonia region it's all around you.
4: The large number of visible nebulae nearby make the region even more fascinating when we consider the possibilities of barnacles and other alien life which have been found near the Pleiades and the California Nebula. Since there is so much left to explore, who is to say what new or long dead alien civilizations may yet be discovered in or near the region? It is ironic that Jacques' misfortune was the stimulus for the creation of the most successful settlement outside the bubble there has ever been.
2: The secret life of UA bombers.
0: Thargoid radiation treatment, or TRT, is the act of disabling a space station using only Thargoid sensors, formerly known as Unknown Artifacts or UAs. One of the groups who have perfected this form of warfare is the Dark Armada. Sagittarius I had the opportunity to meet one of their leaders and discuss what the community at large calls UA bombing. As many pilots have found out the hard way, ships need specialised corrosion-resistant cargo racks in order to safely transport Thargoid sensors. The sensors maintain themselves by continually extracting inorganic material from their surroundings, resulting in cumulative corrosion to the cargo hatch and other ship subsystems. Any ill-prepared pilots will find themselves watching the remaining cargo drifting off into space once their cargo hatch inevitably fails. Lord Mysteron and his group the Dark Armada have perfected the art of safely collecting these dangerous artefacts and using them for their own nefarious purposes. The squadron dedicated to this dark art are known as the Shadow Wing. The Shadow Wing ships are highly optimised for the task. They run without shields or scanners in order to maximise their capacity for Thargoid sensors, and their frameshift drives have been modified to maximise jump range. One Shadow Wing Anaconda can carry up to 144 Thargoid sensors per trip, collection of which usually takes over two hours. The work is time-consuming and tedious, Misteron tells us, but the effects of a successful bombing are substantial. Upon delivery of all 144 units, a pilot can expect to make around 40 million credits. Once a station has been successfully bombed, the station communication system announces that it is suffering from technical difficulties. Everything shuts down. Services like refuelling and repair are no longer offered, and outfitting workshops and shipyards all close. The station market is reduced to the barest of bones, with capability only for trading critical items such as food and a few of the cheaper stocks available. At the time of writing, Application of meta-alloys, the strange materials yielded by the barnacles, is the only known way to repair the damage caused by the Thargoid sensors. Stations affected can remain in shutdown indefinitely if sufficient meta-alloys are not delivered, with the typical duration being at least seven days. Lord Mysteron, why would you want to knock out a station?
8: For the factions that control them. Large orbital stations are fantastic money makers and instruments of economic control. Commodity trading, passenger traffic and sale of exploration data all generate tax income and influence for the controlling faction. Not only that, but stations are typically where factions solicit the help of starship pilots in accomplishing their goals, usually via the missions board. Factions use the revenues from stations, as well as the help of passing pilots in pursuing their strategic aims. Disabling the platform from which they do this has obvious strategic advantages for that
0: faction's enemies. How many Thargoid sensors does it take to knock a station offline? That may sound like a joke, but a prospective bomber needs to know how many Thargoid sensors to collect in order to disable their station of choice. According to Misteron, it's simply a matter of population. The higher the population of a system, the more Thargoid sensors you need to knock the target station offline. Thargoid sensors, like any other commodity, have a certain level of demand within any given system, which pilots can view in the trading interface of their heads-up display. The demand figure governs the sale value. When it comes to Thargoid sensors, it also indicates how many are needed to disable the space station. In order to sell the Thargoid sensor, a station must have a black market. It is a criminal offence to sell or even possess them, as nearly every system in the bubble has outlawed the Thargoid sensor's trade. If caught, smugglers will find themselves with a hefty fine, nearly equal to the value of the goods held. Misteran tells us that it's always advisable to sell a greater number than the demand figure of Thargoid sensors into a black market, both as a margin for error, and also to take into account the actions of other commanders who may be selling meta-alloys into the station at the same time. Generally, 100 extra will do the trick. For larger populations it can take around 600 Thargoid sensors to render a station completely inoperable. For populations greater than ten billion, it may take over one thousand Thargoid sensors to knock just one station offline. What about the moral implications? Misteran is keen to draw distinctions between disrupting stations for military or political means, and merely for disruption's sake. There are those who would shut
8: down stations using Thargoid sensors purely to cause chaos and strife in the galaxy. They target well-known and well-used stations. These people have no honour. What we do is direct retaliation for attacks against
0: us and the Empire. We wondered whether other spacefarers viewed the Dark Armada's activities in the same light. Surprisingly, On says that resistance is limited to a few pirates trying to interdict. More important, when scanning the target station is to deploy heatsinks as needed in order to avoid being scanned by system authority vessels. The chances of being interdicted by a hostile Pilots' Federation member are apparently very slim. There is the danger of being interdicted by Thargoid vessels, but these generally turn out to be benign encounters in which the Thargoid vessel scans your ship and leaves it unmolested. This makes sense in what we already know about the Thargoids, as they're only interested in meta-alloys and occupied human escape pods, and will destroy a ship that refuses to jettison this cargo.
8: When flying a shieldless ship, a pilot must be very certain of his skills to successfully avoid an interdiction.
0: Our time together drawing to a close, Mr On left us with a cryptic and nihilistic message There will always be war in the depths of the void
8: and there will come a time when chaos reigns This is not a bad thing It is a necessary thing Every commander seeks a purpose a cause and war will come to us all in time whether we wish it or not?
9: Canon, Servants of Science. One of the best known factions in the galaxy, Canon Interstellar Research, is the largest and most well established independent science group within the Pilots Federation. This month, we recap the origins and the significant discoveries of this band of pilot scientists. The combination of discrete elements into some other useful substance sometimes requires a catalyst, and in the case of Canon Interstellar Research, that catalyst was the individual known as Dr. Arkanen. His first major appearance was in an appeal for information posted on the Pilots' Federation forum on 28th of April 3301, calling for more research on topics arising from its adventures in the deep, such as rumored alien artifacts and the mysterious Regor sector. At the time, unknown artifacts, now more commonly known as Thargoid sensors, had never been documented and were the subject of much speculation. The interest was such that a prize was pledged of 17 million credits for the first independent commander to find one. The search for these new alien artifacts as well as other rare objects continued, and in time several dozen were found. In May 3301, it was noticed by researchers that the Thargoid sensors made odd subspace vibrations that were picked up and amplified by a ship's hull when being scanned. Incredibly, these were found to contain a simplified version of Morse code. These new discoveries led Dr. Arkonen to make an official announcement on 4 August 3301 of the formation of a group dedicated to studying this and other mysteries. Thus were born Canon Interstellar Research, which soon after, based itself at Thomson Dock in the Variety system. We spoke to Dr. Arkanen.
6: Some years ago, the presence of aliens was treated as something akin to folklore. Few believed, but those few set out to find what was then known as the Unknown Artifact. This loose band of allies grew into a movement, and that movement became the canon. I didn't consciously form
9: the canon, it just grew from
6: those humble beginnings it took on a life of its own.
9: Word spread fast that an organized group were delving into the mysteries of aliens and any strange artifacts found floating in space. Canon, already substantial in membership at inception due to the wide-ranging interest of these mysteries, grew quickly, no doubt helped by the curiously open structure that it has always maintained. Its membership reached into the thousands soon after. On the 15th of september the scientist professor ishmael palin established a research program into these unknown artifacts it was mysteriously shut down by federal authorities on the 20th of september during the public outcry that followed canon invited palin to join their ranks but he declined preferring to remain independent on the 15th of december odd biomechanical objects were found by canon members on various planets these slightly resembled the earth's lifeform known as barnacles this discovery ignited a frenzy of speculation and research among the spacefaring community and propelled Canon into the spotlight. Canon's first dedicated research outpost was constructed in Col 285 sector IX-T D3-43 on 10th March 3302 and was named for the faction as the Canon Research Institute. On the 27th of May 3302 a new alien object variant was found. Designated as the unknown probe. Meanwhile, various discoveries continued to pile up a wreck of an alien ship in August A ruin of an ancient alien civilization in October A later identified as a guardian site and the non-sentient alien plant light discovered on Colonia 3 CA later that same month The most dramatic event came in January 3303 when pilots traveling through the Pleiades star cluster began to be yanked out of hyperspace by unknown flower-shaped ships now known as Thargoid interceptors. This became colloquially known as hyperdiction and continued for several months without any hostilities between the aliens and those pilots unfortunate enough to be interdicted. Canard's research into these phenomena demanded new infrastructure, and so in May a community goal was set to build a megaship. The genosis was completed on May 13, 3303 and its maiden voyage was on September 25th of that year. In the autumn of 3303, independent pilots traced the missions from within the Pleiades, leading a number of them to locate the first of several large, ominous alien structures. Using the new information found within these unknown structures and the newly discovered Thargoid links which were first discovered there, a total of 208 Thargoid sites were eventually located and documented by Canon. Sometime later, on the 27th of September, one cannon scientist, Commander Pan Piper, located an entire forest of Thargoid barnacles. Piper soon became known as the Barnacle Whisperer, for his extraordinary ability to quickly and reliably find barnacles. These barnacle forests were soon found in several different locations in and around the Pleiades, California and Witch Head sectors. Over the four years since the first Thargoid objects began appearing, canon research has been in the forefront of the quest to document and understand them. We have reached a point, a critical mass if you will, that ensures that we will be on hand to find the truth no matter where things lead. The highlights presented here are but a small fraction of the incredible and varied contributions made by this enterprising group of focused adventurers. A curious reader could spend a great deal of time learning the entirety of Canon's Interstellar Researcher's history. As our galaxy reveals more of its hidden mysteries, no doubt, the formidable minds and white lab coats of these spacefaring scientists will continue to lead the way. Ships You Do
2: Fly
7: A pilot ship progression is as varied as there are commanders in the galaxy. However, there are certain ships that are acknowledged as all time bestsellers. Over a few weeks, we collated some of the results of informal polls in order to celebrate the most loved vessels we all fly. We've all been there, a lonely commander, getting ready for your first launch in the small yet flexible Sidewinder made by famous shipbuilder Falcon de Lacey. The Sidey allows a veteran commander to quickly jump to an Asp Explorer, but for a new pilot, it represents the means to learn to fly. Some commanders take this wonderful little ship to the edge with engineering and use it for those missions in which data needs to move quickly. Famous engineer Felicity Farcia sells enhanced performance thrusters at her planetary base in Dessia, designed for small ships. While there, pilots would be well advised to take advantage of her engineering facilities with the best engineering and specialised outfitting, the Sidewinder Mark I becomes great for covert data delivery and can reach a cruise speed of 500 metres per second. Though the Sidewinder is rarely purchased deliberately, it deserves praise as that ever-present, dependable ship we come back to when we commit the error of flying without a rebuy. A curious aside, this writer has never seen a new model, only second-hand examples, if any readers come across a brand new Sidewinder, do let us know. When they tire of the Sidewinder's smell, aspirational pilots often hop up to a Cobra Mark III. At a great standard price of 350,000 credits with a 17,500 credit insurance, the Cobra offers excellent multi role features that make it better for mining and exploration, but less optimised for combat or long-range haulage. In terms of combat capabilities, the Cobra comes with two small and two medium hardpoints, a good arsenal for ships of this size. However, it can be easily outmaneuvered. The six internal compartments give it great versatility though, and the relative size of its frameshift drive or FSD makes it a good exploration vessel. Without any weapons, it can achieve a 30 light-year jump range, with space for an auto-field maintenance unit, advanced discovery scanner, and detailed surface scanner the Cobra Mark III regularly makes top ten lists of preferred ships. The all-time favourite for getting away from it all has been the ASP Explorer by Lacon Spaceways for years. A ship designed for long-range exploration, the ASP is a formidable multi-role vessel that just happens to have a jump range that only one other commercially available starship can match, the Falcon de Lacey Anaconda. The ASP's frameshift drive coupling is of a huge class in relation to its mass, giving it a peerless ability to make long hyperspace jumps among comparably priced ships. You'll probably own one, and will probably keep it for your entire career if you do much exploring. As well as this, the Aspo's boasts the typical Lakon bubble cockpit, a magnet for missiles. This is a significant weakness in combat, but the exceptional visibility makes the sights of deep space all the more alluring. Also a multi-purpose ship, the Python frequently tops Pilots' Federation most-owned lists, Packed with capacious internal compartments, small enough to land at outposts, and generously endowed with hardpoints, there's really not much that this ship can't do. It's a good mid-level ship for mining and trading, as large internal compartments allow for voluminous cargo racks and refineries. Three large hardpoints make the Python a respectable gunboat, While its limited manoeuvrability means that it will never be a pilot's first choice in combat, with some attention from the galaxy's engineers and the inclusion of a fighter bay, this ship can easily scare off most aggressors. In fact, for sheer versatility, the Python is really only bested by one ship. For some time, this was the grand dame of the commercial ship scene, the Big Daddy, the unparalleled monarch of the spaceways. The Anaconda is an old design, marketed by Falcon De Lacey as their ultimate multi purpose money sink. It is Enormous. 155 metres long and eye-wateringly expensive at close to 150 million credits. The Anaconda is a starship the size of a town, with some might comment similar mobility. Recently redesigned to allow the vessel to be piloted by one person, the Anaconda is close to the best at anything it chooses to do. In terms of raw firepower, no other commercially available ship can match its eight hard points. His frameshift drive alone is larger than many starships and allows the Anaconda to jump further through hyperspace than any other vessel smaller than a capital ship at the time of writing, despite its 400 tonnes. Commander Germanis points out what is really the only perceived weakness of this behemoth.
1: The Anaconda can't use outposts or medium docks, making the Python a superior choice in many use cases.
7: Despite these ships' variety, common traits do emerge on inspection. Commander Robin of Spiritwood. Jump range seems to
0: be a major factor in choosing what ship to use. Additionally, cargo capacity and flexibility make a ship popular.
7: Another common trait seems to be being manufactured by Vulcan de Lacy. This venerable shipyard has something of a pedigree in reliable, multi-purpose ships, eschewing specialisms in favour of broad appeal. Despite being known for a somewhat relaxed approach to user experience, many brand new Falcon models still ship with tape holding wires in place. These ships form the backbone of many pilots' fleets. The Crate Mark II, a recent addition to the De stable reviewed in a previous issue of this magazine, epitomises this approach and is fast becoming a future classic itself.
6: not the future our ancestors imagined. As a species, our powers of prophecy are notoriously poor. The future we anticipated at the time of our first forays into space was often cheerfully free of pests like hunger, war and corruption. Thirteen centuries on, these old Malays are no closer to being banished. In this article, we take a look at our history and ask, is this what we expected? When you were a child, did you think about the future? Perhaps you looked up at the sky and considered where humanity would be when you became an adult. It might be that you grew up on a planet which had a limited access to the interstellar highway. Or maybe you were raised on a farm, far away from the big city spaceports. Maybe those bright lights and tall towers were a remote dream, far from your everyday existence. If you grew up as part of the interstellar society, living on an orbital space station, a mining colony, or even aboard a ship, the cold reality of space was always lurking outside your window. Looking back from where we've come can be a good way to measure our own, and humanity's progress. When the first colonists left Earth in the middle of the 22nd century, they were looking for an alternative future. The risks associated with long-duration hibernation back then, before hyperdrives, meant that many pioneers went to sleep without any guarantee they'd ever wake up. Even if awoken successfully, those colonists knew they had to continue their lives without the friends or relatives they left behind. The decades in slumber would be a kind of time travel, an opportunity to step into their own future, to live in a new time and a new place, on a new planet, as a courageous pioneer. Their footsteps would be the first in which others could only follow. For people on those early ships, that time travel could be both a dream and a nightmare. One minute you close your eyes, and the next you open them, centuries have passed and every skill you ever learned is out of date. This is why the Federation still tries to keep curious pilots away from generation ships and old sublight speed colonial vessels. In many ways, the people living on those boats are an archaic curiosity, trapped between times aboard the dying hulks. Eventually, those who have not already finished their journeys may have to be rescued. But when they are, will they find themselves able to cope with the 34th century? When those people all went to sleep, very few would have considered a possibility they would live again in 1200 years. At the time we first ventured into space, superluminal flight and instant communication were both thought implausible. These days we have frameshift drives, cloning, printed organ replacement, instantaneous communication devices reaching out to the corners of the galaxy, and inexpensive personal transportation that can take us across that vastness within hours and days. Amidst archives of old hardbound books, three-dimensional entertainment vids, and their various pieces of artwork, there is certainly evidence that our ancestors anticipated at least some of these things. But if they were hoping we would find a way to live in harmony, Both with each other, and with anything we might encounter in this vast galaxy, they would have been sadly disappointed. Individuals like legendary explorer Augustus Brenquith gave up their lives to explore the stars. Brenquith was one man in a modified Gryphon-class freighter on a glittering quest to discover new worlds. He sent messenger probes back towards Earth in the hope they would be found and his discoveries would be shared. But he couldn't know how many of his discoveries would later be colonized. Those that followed in his footsteps were better informed on what to expect, millions of miles away from home. But there was plenty still to encounter and learn about. Now explorers use their hyperdrive-capable ships to travel further and further into the unexplored regions, returning in hours, days, or weeks, rather than years or decades. But even then, they are only seeing a tiny portion of all there is to be seen. We know the universe is vast, and we are not alone within it. The Tau Ceti Dilemma of 2161 was the first occasion where human colonists had to make a choice between preserving a xenoculture and extinguishing it in favor of their own interests. The result of that choice was the destruction of indigenous alien life on Tau Ceti III through hunting at first a necessity and later a trade. There are many parallels between this and the extinction of indigenous cultures, animals and plants on Earth, but this was the first time humanity had destroyed life on another planet to satisfy its own needs. When we consider those circumstances in comparison to our current situation with the Thargoids, there are many similarities. Each time humanity has faced adversity and felt the need to murder to survive, it has always done so with little understanding of its target's motivation. This situation is no different. We do not know what the Thargoids really want, other than to exist. We have no idea of their cultural codes or rules and no idea whether the violence beaded out by their spaceships is intentional, retaliatory or simply a consequence of our proximity to them. How do they consider us? Are we a rival or a bug on the forward canopy? Are we sport to be hunted or an enemy who threatens their survival? When considering our own civilization, our ancestors will have hoped their new colonies would be governed fairly and justly, with each man, woman and child having access to new opportunities and technologies, enabling them to live rich and varied lives. Perhaps this is the case in some places, but certainly not most. Poverty and crime are rife throughout human-controlled space. Corporations still exploit the weak, and politicians still lie and cheat their way to power. People still murder for profit, just as they have always done. The victims are faceless in their ships, their escape pods, or even their Remlock suits as they drift away into darkness, hoping in vain for rescue. However, there are countless new technologies, works of art, and monumental lives that have been lived between now and the time of our earthbound forefathers. Each of these are precious and contribute to the positive legacy of humanity in our universe. So 3304, with all its beauty, innovation, faults and flaws, cannot be the fully imagined future of our ancestors. No one could have possibly foreseen this beautiful, imperfect moment we find ourselves in
2: black flight imra cover-up agency
10: their acts have been publicized throughout the galaxy their methods considered unorthodox their intentions unclear very little is known about the shadowy military organization hiding in the pleiades nebula that goes by the name of black flight over time some light has been shed on them Leading many to decry their methods and intentions. Who are they? Black Flight, first observed by Commander Mikkel Atrum, Canon Interstellar Research's Head of Archaeology and Technology, can be found in relay station PSJ 17 in the Seleno system. Any approach towards the station will result in an aggressive response from the ships nearby, all of which are elite. Rather than names, the pilots fly under specialized designations made up of incomprehensible letters and numbers such as SVI-075C. All of these ships are Diamondback series and fly in formation alongside the system security force. What we do know is that the pilots patrol the area for trespassers and, should they spot any, give warning, then quickly open fire. Should the trespasser take out the black flight ships, they issue a final wideband report before they die to a recipient known as Command.
4: That's the site
0: breached. Flight is lost. The data's in the open.
10: The data they refer to is in the form of uplink logs scattered around the station. Pilots can use their data link scanners on these to reveal more about the enigmatic organization. The data found on relay station PSJ-17 sheds light on several horrible acts apparently committed by Black Flight as well as providing solutions to a few long-standing mysteries. The first link is a missive from Command to a ship designated Recon 6. The log reveals that Recon 6 was in the system HIP-17746 when transmissions from the ship were suddenly cut off. The last fragment received mentions an encounter with some unknown life form. When visiting this system, a pilot can find a crashed Diamondback Explorer with a scannable data point. The log is partially corrupted but reveals that Recon 6 was being chased by a Thargoid and had discovered a signal that does not match any known language. These are the last distinguishable words. It was discovered soon after finding this ship that there is indeed a Thargoid site in this system. The second uplink at Relay Station PSJ-17 reveals that Black Flight targeted the survey vessel Victorious Song. The message instructs Black Flight 12 to apprehend the crew for questioning at Overlook and to kill them if they refuse to comply. The megaship Overlook is apparently in system hip 22460, but this remains unverifiable as the system is permit-locked. Should a pilot visit the survey vessel Victoria Song, they will find it severely damaged. Scanning the ship's logs shows that the megaship was attacked by an unknown security force for no discernible reason. The logs also hint that the crew had almost certainly found another Thargoid planetary site. Survey Vessel
3: Victoria Song, Commander's Log. We've stumbled onto something big. I don't know what it is or who built it, but we've definitely hit the mother load. Aries Dark Region DB-X D1-63 is going to have our names on it. First things first, I've got to make sure all this is by the numbers. I don't want this going
9: south because we didn't fill in the correct paperwork. I'm calling it in.
10: Again, Detailed scanning of the system reveals yet another Thargoid base. The uplink describes the attack upon the megaship. In the background audio, a shattering of polyglass can be distinctly made out. All around the bubble can be found mysterious satellites called listening posts. These odd devices monitor the area and presumably report what is happening nearby. It is unknown who owns or controls these platforms, but an unsettling uplink taken from the black flight station in Solano gives reason to believe that they might be behind some, or all of them, or at the very least have access to their functions.
1: Flyity Sector, India, Hotel, Dash, Victor, Charlie, 2, Dash, 5, Log, Listening Post Signal Data, Unknown Subroutine, November, November, Papa, Dash, 292, Dash, Alpha, Detected. Signal match detected in Hotel, India, HAPA, one seven one two five. Partial decryption achieved.
3: You can't just arrest us. We haven't done anything wrong.
7: This is a registered third mission We have all the paperwork. Please, please listen to me. No, please. We an unarmed survey team. Please.
4: This is Black Flight 12 to command. Fight secured. Clean up underway.
0: Beacon signal
8: interrupted.
10: Orbiting the fourth planet in the Electro system is a station called Communication Hub Zeta-12. Upon exit from supercruise, two ships with black flight designations drop in and open fire. If the curious pilot manages to take them out and scan the station's uplinks, they will find that the crew of the station discovered yet another Thargoid site. Armed men later came, telling the inhabitants that they were being sent home and that the station was being automated. These men had said that they were from head office and had been sent to bring everything under control, but as the crew watched, the soldiers deleted all the data from the station, not just on the discoveries, but everything in the computer's memory. The log details how one member of the station's staff suspected that the soldiers weren't from head office at all, and secretly put some of the data in an offline call for safekeeping. After this, while it seemed that the crew were to be sent home, the narrator believed otherwise. Since the crew seems to have disappeared afterwards, their fate cannot be determined. The data contained in these logs points at some dark and sinister purpose. Black Flight could be INRA or Aegis agents working to cover up all previous information gathered concerning the Thargoid after they supposedly withdrew. After all, records recovered from places they attacked detail Thargoid discoveries in some way. Upon the crew of Victoria's Song finding a Thargoid site, Black Flight came in to silence them once and for all. When Zeta-12's crew found another, once again, Black Flight stormed in to remove them and purge the data. Was Black Flight just Inra's or Aegis's best hope at attempting to keep the return of the Thargoids from leaking out into the public and in so doing prevent mass chaos and panic? Eventually, with the immensity of their operations gaining so much public attention, the jig was up, and all they could do was bury their actions as best they could. Whatever Black Flight is, it is shrouded in a blanket of deniability. No one has yet been able to link them to any specific superpower. Their motives are clearly to obfuscate, silence, and hide the reality of our dealings with the Thargoid adversary. But it continues to remain unclear
2: for whom they do so.
3: Lave Revolution Audio Drama. The revolution on the planet Lave in the historic Lave system in 3265 has been much commented upon by analysts over the last few years. The story of the brutal and manipulative Hans Walden has become legend, and the system itself has attracted sightseers in their hundreds as a result. In August this year, new audio logs came to light detailing the remarkable events preceding the Revolution in startling clarity. Expertly assembled by historians Commander Thane and Alan Stroud from flight recordings, first-hand accounts, station security feeds, and surveillance logs, *Lave Revolution Audio Drama tells the story of the enigmatic Pietro de Vander, amoral pirate Heldeben Kell, ruthless Dr. Hans Walden, and many other figures pivotal to the events of that fateful year revisionist historians will find much of value here. Stroud is ungenerous in his account of Hans Walden, but as an administrator of Station, he is well placed to pass verdict on a divisive local figure. The personal journeys that the memorable characters are swept along, against the background of high-stakes political intrigue, is arresting stuff. The voices of roguish pirates, beguiling imperial double agents, conscience-stricken bureaucrats and federal spies all jostle for singular attention. In total, the recordings last for around five and a half hours, perfect listening for long interplanetary cruises. Sadly, all those involved have either disappeared or died since the logs were recorded, but unverified reports of Cal in the Lave system do persist. Pick up your copy from www.radiotheaterworkshop.com.
0: Thank you for listening to issue 15 of Sagittarius I Magazine. This issue featured articles written by Adurnus, Alan Stride, Boanzox, G.W., Icarus, Marrow, J.C. Warren, McNichol, and Udomia. This audio edition features the voices of Adernis, Beetlejuice, Catisfaction, Deronar, Maya, Mayfay, Mugyver, Perky, Percy, Poets, Sparrow, Rosetta, Stone, Souverine, Spidey, w 2, Wotherspoon, and Wrangler, Actual, and was edited by Adurnus, Edelweiss Souverine, Doctor Toxic, and Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko so. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy, by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at Sagittarius-I.com. Sagittarius I was created in assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.